Welcome to the Black Cast. I'm Christian Blatt at Christian DMZ on Twitter and Instagram. I'm going to try and remember that more often. And the show itself at Blattcast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. Also on Twitter and Instagram. Like the Blattcast on Facebook. And you can always go to blattcast.com. Also B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. I'm alone here on the bridge today of the USS Blackcast, But uh, of course, a shout out to Coltrane at Coltrane Leaks. Captain EO at Jeff DeRay. Agent Starling at Will Sterling underscore. And he also has the Motivation Report at Motivate Report. And continuing with the Star Trek metaphor, before we open hailing frequencies to talk to my guest for the entire episode, I want to give a shout out to our friend Katie Darrell. Her show, World's Greatest Tribute Bands, is back, airing Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific on Access TV. And I will be interviewing Katie for a Spotlight On over at AfterBuzz TV, Monday, March 13th, at 5 p.m. Eastern to Pacific. Keep an eye on social media for that link. But for now, let's get to today's guest, Jeff Winstead, who is at Jeff Winstead, W-I-N-S-T-E-A-D. On Twitter, his website is jeffwinstead.com. Thanks for making the time for the Blackcast, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Hey, Christian. Thanks for having me. So a little bit about how you and I know each other. I guess first and foremost, we don't really know each other. This is the, first time, we're, this is the first time we're ever actually speaking. That's although correct. we have traded a lot of messages on Twitter and Facebook Messenger and some other places, uh, usually talking about comic books. And we are going to talk a lot about comic books today. Uh, you know, Jeff, I actually highlighted and cut and paste our Facebook Messenger chats, and I was going to sort through them and try and you know pick some of the highlights because those are things I wanted to talk about. And sure. I did a little bit of that. Uh, it's 24 pages. So I guess we've <laughs> talked an awful lot about 80s Spider-Man and Ron Friend's artwork and things that we didn't like, which we'll talk about all that stuff. But I figure since we're going to talk so much about comic books, what I wanted to do is tell your story when you started reading comics, which ones appealed to you right away, and sort of your history just as a fan of comics. We'll talk about how Jeff actually has his own comic book, and we'll talk about that in, in a couple of minutes. But let's start at the beginning for you, your, your relationship with comic books. Sure. I got into comics a little late. Um, I was 13. I had read you know, a handful of comics beforehand, but they really didn't grab me. And I think I went pretty much from being a obsessed with Star Wars and Star Wars action figures. Right. I'm 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 the same. Yeah, definitely. As it happened, a friend of mine in in uh, junior high found a issue of Batman in a teacher's lounge. Now why he was in the teacher's lounge, I have no idea, but he found it, brought it back to the room and just asked, does anybody want this? And uh, I grabbed it. And at, at that point, I was sucked right in. 
So there was a, I think it was an 81 issue. It was Batman 344, Batman versus Poison Ivy. Wow. All right. Uh, so that's a, that's a pretty good matchup, Batman versus Poison yeah, Ivy. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a pretty good, pretty solid issue. Um, after that, I think my mom was like going to the drugstore or something. So I tagged, tagged along with her and just immediately started picking stuff up. So um, went from that to one of my first books was Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven. I know you're not, not a big DC Well, no, guy. and 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 that's that's actually the the first conversation that I think we had on well, on yes. on Facebook was that I was just basically, you know, you chum the waters somewhat. That's more of a radio thing. But I was just trying to get a conversation started. And I'd had a conversation about Crisis on Infinite Earths, which I completely admit I did not read. Uh, but I, of course, read all 12 issues of Secret Wars. So I was just like, yeah, Secret Wars is better. You know, you just do that stuff a lot of the time. <laughs> but uh, that was actually the, the first thing that you and I talked about. So you that's got right, yeah. issue seven. That's not the one with uh, Supergirl dead on the cover, is it? That is the one, yeah. So you obviously weren't attached to her, but uh, you seeing no, seeing no. that that image that must have been upsetting. Exactly. Yeah, my only experience with her was the you know, Helen Slater movie from you know. Oh, a few we, years before. we we all have experiences with the Helen Slater movie. Yeah, the, exactly. Some, some of which we can talk about, some of which we cannot. And I I just brought it up just to look at it, and yeah, it's it, I mean. Having no attachment to Supergirl, that's that's heartbreaking. You look at how upset Clark Kent is. Anybody listening? I guess he's Superman at that point. Sorry, he didn't have the glasses on. But Superman's very upset that his, his cousin has died, and I'm fairly sure that she didn't stay dead, but that's besides the point. Yeah, um, well, the interesting thing about that book is it's you know the seventh issue of a 12-part, and it was structured in such a way, and I think a lot of older comics are like this. I, I listened to your uh, Chris Claremont interview, and X-Men does this a lot, where he gives you enough information in a single issue for it to be your first issue. And um, they did that very well in, in this comic where they gave enough of the backstory in, in set in for issue seven yeah. that you follow along. And it was a nice, tight, single story, which I think is missing from a lot of modern comics, which we can talk about that later. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit out of the game in modern comics, but when I've read stuff, it's sort of been loaned to me as trade paperbacks, which are kind of designed okay. to not have you ask too many questions. And right. yeah, I mean, a lot of comics, I think, you know, I, I, I honestly, the first issue of Secret Wars that I owned was number four, just because the Hulk is basically holding a mountain and yeah, everybody's hiding inside of it. Yeah, that's an amazing comic book cover. And I was just like, well, wait, why are they all hanging out together? And, you know, I went back and was able to get them. But I, I, I feel uh, from our conversations before, Jeff, that you're not from like a big metropolitan area. And I, I'm not either. I grew up, you know, 45 miles northwest of Manhattan, but it might as well have been 400 miles with, yeah, you know, yeah. my parents' reticence to go in there. So uh, until I was probably in maybe late middle school, junior high, maybe early high school, there weren't specialty comic book stores anywhere near me even once they opened they were still about a half an hour away so if i didn't buy it when it was on the newsstand i didn't get it you know so that was one of the main reasons why i subscribed to comic books and you know they came in the the uh, brown wrapping you know the, exactly. the brown wrapper yes. which i guess was the same way that playboy was delivered at that time <laughs> so i think people were probably much more interested in my mailbox than they ought to have been you know just like i don't know why there's so much smut going to the black exactly. house it's it, it is interesting because I guess they figure, especially with comics being 
readily available online and being read that way, they're not as worried about somebody jumping in in issue seven. And like, well, we got to explain what happened in the earlier six. But for people like you and I, you know, I got Secret Wars number four. It was years before I read the first three. I was able to figure it out. But, you know, and it's the same thing for you. Like, at some point, I assume you read the first six issues of Crisis on Infinite Earth, but it probably wasn't for a while, was it? It was not. And I think the next issue I read was 11. Uh, You know, you sort of, like, pick things up. I did grow up, like you say, deep in the sticks Yeah. uh, in Kentucky. And I I was probably in high school, like, maybe 16. So it was three years in before I ever hit an actual comic shop. So I I actually missed – there was a storyline in Batman. You might be familiar with this where they killed off the Jason Todd version of Robin. Yeah, we've talked about that on the Blackcast, how they left it up to the fans and people got to call a 900 number. And they hated Jason Todd so much – that they wanted him to die. And I don't know anything about the Jason Todd Batman. I mean, sorry, the Jason Todd Robin. You know, sure. Dick Grayson's really the only one that I know. I know that I guess his his son is Robin now, but that's I, I only know because that showed up in the Batman Ninja Turtles that Agent oh, yes. Starling wrote yeah. me. But anyway, uh, so yeah, and I was just like, well, that seems harsh. You know, I mean, there are characters way before Robin to kill off. You know, I there's a I, I wish that Marvel had given us the choice to kill off Speedball or somebody. You know, exactly. I mean, yes, yeah. So and that's the thing, I actually, I, I picked up at a, at a local grocery store. Part one, part two, of that story. Yeah. Part three was the issue with you. They, you would know if they killed him off or not. In my grocery store, chose not to carry that issue for some bizarre reason. So it was probably two years later before I actually read, I'm, you know, I obviously pieced together that they had in fact killed him, but it was a couple of years later before I was able to read the story. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, anybody who collects comics now, and I think that a lot of people who listen to the broadcast to the extent of listening to every episode, you probably need to be collecting comics to enjoy some of the stuff we talk about. It, it is a lot easier. And I, I, plenty of people, you know, are sort of more in our age range where they remember that but it, it it's it's hard to think back to just how difficult it was to follow some of these stories and sometimes they weren't as easy to follow if you didn't get every issue you know i on uh, Blackcast number 39, I talked to Chris Claremont, who, of course, for our listeners, I'm mentioning this, he wrote the X-Men for 17 years. And the first Uncanny X-Men I ever read was number 176. And Cyclops is on his honeymoon with Madeline Pryor, who years later we found out was a clone of Jean Grey. But she, did, right. look, she did look exactly like Jean Grey, That's so right. you should have been suspicious. And he fights a giant squid or an octopus i think it's an octopus in in the water and that's almost the entire issue and yet something about that comic i was compelled and i i bought a lot more although i didn't buy the next one for a while but i i I was very interested somehow and if there's ever like a worse first issue i i've yet to come across it you know i guess sort of in the middle of a multi-part epic but it's just it's not the most exciting thing but something about those stories could be compelling in that way but as i referenced earlier it's sort of the difficulty in getting comic books early on is why i subscribed and i you know also it was a little bit cheaper to subscribe it wasn't a lot first of all the comics were like first 60 cents then 75 cents so they weren't that expensive to begin with but of course when you're a kid 75 cents is not as easy to come by so I, I got a, I got all of my favorites for a while, and then my brother and I started just 
every month we would place an order with a service called Westfield Comics because oh, yes, we could, Westfield, yeah, because yeah, we could get everything, and then you could kind of sample things that were sort of you know direct edition only releases. So we spent more money, but we less than if we had had a comic book store in town. So it, it was very hard to follow these comics, you know, day in day out, but. If you really wanted to, you just sort of had to plan ahead. That's all you needed to do. You had to either subscribe or right. one of those. I think Mile High Comics also did a mail service like that, too. You know, for years into the 90s, we did that. And I, I got to read some great stuff because of it. I, I used Westfield also. Oh, that's I interesting. Yeah, I started having them ship me stuff so I could, you know, like you say, read what I wanted to and not miss anything, Yeah, which is great. It was so fan. Nothing was more exciting than waiting for the UPS truck to drop off that box every month. Yeah, every day I was hoping that this was the day yes. that it would come. And, you know, and, and sometimes it didn't. And you're exactly. just like, where, where are they? But it came once a month. I think you could have done it every two weeks, but that was more shipping. So once a month. Yeah, that cash. Yeah, exactly. so there there would be things that you were waiting for like weeks after they came out and then other things you're sort of getting right away. But yeah, it was, it was uh, I don't know. I mean, people do it now, you know, where they, they have the local comic book store pull a bunch of books for them and then they let them pile up for a month or two. It, it's, it's a completely different experience though. This is just, there was no other way for me to get a comic book. I mean, I could subscribe, but if it was a direct edition and not sold on newsstands, I wasn't going to see it. And for you, where you grew up in Kentucky, where was the closest place you could get any comic books? Like, you know, just any comic books at all, like a, a newsstand or a grocery store. How far away was that for you? It was a 15-minute drive. I mean, there was nothing walking distance. Right. Um, so you had to get to the closest one-stoplight town Yeah. to a, you know, a drugstore. I, th- I believe there was a drugstore and a grocery store that sold comics. So I would hit both. We we were a one stoplight town, but uh, up until the late '80s, we had a like a, a newsstand slash. Well, it wasn't a diner; it was like a dinette, a luncheonette, really, that also had a newsstand section, and it was called Quackies because the guy who owned it, his last name was Quackenbush, and uh, so you know we would go, we would walk into town, we go to Quackies and and buy a bunch of comics, and when they first stopped getting new comics and then closed, I was like. I, I got to figure something else out because I, I, I can't stop. And, you know, my mom wasn't going to take me to some place that was 30, 45 miles away just so I could buy sure. comic books. So it was decent access when I was first reading. And then before too long, I was shut out completely. And I'm wondering, you know, people who are listening, I feel as though some of them might have similar experiences. Obviously, if you grew up in a big city, even, you know, a big metropolitan area like somewhere in Southern California, you probably didn't have this problem. Yes, uh, but yeah. uh, that's one of the things that in the 24 pages of Facebook messaging that Jeff and I did, we, we sort of bonded over how hard it was for us to follow some of these some of these titles that we really liked. One of the most exciting things for me was uh, a couple of years after I started reading comics, I ended up finding several towns over a used bookstore that was going out of business. I happened to be there that day and he had a bunch of comics in the back and he was selling them at, you know, fire sale prices. And I walked out with a sack of comics, like a grocery sack full for five bucks. Wow. And never have you seen a happier kid. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. And so I got into like old back issues of Aquaman, uh, you know, old uh, Marvel tales, which we've talked about before. Those, those old Spider-Man reprints. Um, just tons of stuff. Joker, you know, a lot of stuff from the 70s. It was fantastic. 
Yeah, when I would, you know, sometimes my brother's five years older than me, so sometimes he had some comics that I would read, although he didn't really collect them for much longer than before I did. So he sort of got into it, I guess. You know, he must have been like 12 because the first comics that I bought, I was like seven or eight. I think the first comic I actually bought, I was thinking about this knowing I was going to talk to you, was you mentioned Star Wars earlier. Uh, Star Wars number 75, the Marvel Star Wars, which was a continuation of an issue my brother had bought. But then he didn't buy the next one. I think he was basically going to wait me out. And he's just like, well, you're going to buy part two. And then we never, and I didn't read part three for like 15 years because yeah. again, you know, you missed number 76, you're out of luck. You know, that was sort of, it was a, it was a great end. And that's probably why they do that licensing because I loved Star Wars so much and there weren't going to be, well, this was actually right before Return of the Jedi, but I just wanted more Star Wars in my life. And that's why sure. I continued collecting the series. And, you know, I liked Spider-Man. I would watch Spider-Man as Amazing Friends, um, despite the fact that it, it was not a good show. But I didn't know that, you know. Yeah. You mentioned Marvel Tales, and that was great because I was getting to read the old Stanley, Steve Ditko, early Spider-Man still in high school, you know, and I just sort of getting some of the backstory, you know, actually getting to read stories about the Green Goblin who was had been dead for a while, like for probably a decade by the time I started reading comics, if not a little longer. Yeah, so yeah. it was great to get to read all of that stuff. And, you know, now, of course, if you want to read, you know, Amazing Fantasy 15 through like 700 issues of Spider-Man, you know, you just have to sign up for Marvel's service or I don't know if you, I don't know if it's covered and all that, how, how all that works, but it's not as, as difficult. And the, the reprint series, yeah, I was pretty excited uh, about that. And, I, uh, I, that was also, that was my first Spider-Man comic was a, a Marvel Tales. And then I was like, oh, okay, I'll read these newer ones. Hey, he has this cool black costume. So the first Spider-Man comic book I bought sort of to transition to one of our main topics was Amazing Spider-Man number 254. And this was sort of early on in the run of the Hobgoblin, although he was not in that issue. Uh, yeah. Spider-Man goes and finds his battle van in the Hudson River or the East River. I don't remember which. And he basically, you know, there's sort of a lot of talk about the Hobgoblin. And I don't know, I was very interested. I mean, I always liked Spider-Man. I, I sort of liked his, you know, his whole sensibility, but also kind of his personality. He was very funny, and I kind of liked that about him. So uh, I read that comic, and I continued to buy Spider-Man for a very long time. So that was like 254. I probably, I probably collected consecutively about 100 issues of Amazing Spider-Man. And... You know, we can talk a little bit more about why I may have not may have, but why I just kind of had enough with the whole thing. Sure, but yeah. this was also an era that you were reading. So it's a, yeah. sort of a very specific time period. And this is before kind of an explosion in artist dictated storylines by people like Todd McFarlane and you know, Rob Liefeld and people like that who all went on to create Image Comics, but not after they basically destroyed the Marvel comics that I liked. So I said I was going to talk about it later, but I basically just referenced what it was <laughs> that kind of drove me away. But uh, at what point did you start reading Spider-Man? Yeah, that's right. My my first issue was 270, which was also a black costume issue. So even though I'm a, I have a couple years on you, but I started reading a little later. Yeah, um, but... And th and that's of course the the fake black costume because he's already gotten rid of the the symbiote uh, right. that became Venom and he's just 
kept the black costume. And, you know, they kind of alternated. Sometimes he'd wear the red one. Sometimes he wore the black one. I, I was fine with that. You know, I think I think that the black one looked cool and it kind of made sense. You know, if he's if he's out on a night mission of some kind. Yeah, maybe maybe yeah. don't be dressed in bright red. You know, exactly. I love that black costume. I mean, I always thought you know, this is the costume that if you really wore this guy, you would actually wear. It's essentially a ninja cat suit. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Big white spider on it. Now I can see how, from a licensing standpoint, you know, Marvel wanted to go back to the classic, but just as a from a pure look, it's just a really cool looking suit. That's the era where I started reading. So that was sort of that was basically yes, I was reading Marvel Tales, but that was the the Spider Man that I first knew. And you know, on the Blackcast, we were recently talking. I was talking to Agent Starling. This came from a conversation we had off the air. We were talking about how Amazing Spider-Man 258. He gets rid of the 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 symbiote black costume, and he has to basically web swing home from the Baxter Building, which oh, yes. was still the home of the Fantastic Four. I don't think it was Four Freedoms Plaza yet. And he basically has on a Fantastic Four uniform and a bag over his head to protect his, his head, yeah yes. to protect his secret identity and. Uh, Will felt very strongly that that needed to be the next movie, and I was like, "Well, that would be better than any Fantastic Four movie we've ever seen." That's true. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> only Spider-Man would have to stoop to the level of putting a paper sack over his head. <laughs> yeah. And holes in it. yeah, and that's kind of what I liked about him. And and I know that you're primarily a, a DC fan, or at least first and foremost. And I don't think it was as conscious of a decision. I just felt it was easier to relate to people like Peter Parker. And yes, of course there's Tony Stark, who's a multimillionaire, but it was easier for me to relate to somebody like Peter Parker who had problems for, you know, like the X-Men who also were outcasts than, you know, Bruce Wayne and, and Clark Kent and, you know, all, all of these people who had really good lives. And then also, you know, I mean, Batman on, I mean, he has a terrible thing happen to him, sure, but He's also like, you know, what I should probably get out there and do is fight crime, you know, and sort of the randomness of of what happened to Peter Parker, the, you know, bitten by a radioactive spider at, while he's in high school. And he's still not popular. Just that idea that you could be Spider-Man and everybody still hates you. You know, they don't know you're Spider-Man. So I, I just always sort of liked those characters. It's almost preposterous to say, but they just felt more real to me. You know, the, well, some of the Marvel is, characters? Yeah, Jerry Conway, who wrote the, the books, um, he was a writer during the era where they killed Gwen Stacy. And yeah, and, and when they killed the Green Goblin, you know, that's, right. that's like... And he also came back in the, so I think early to mid, I guess late 80s to early 90s, he came back. He would, he would occasionally reference, he would have Peter saying, this never happens to Batman. This yeah. never happens to Superman <laughs> in the books. And I always thought, how can you even mention the competition's character characters by name? That's crazy. It, it is actually really interesting that, yeah, that there would be stuff like that. And uh, Jerry Conway also went on to write episodes of Marvel's animated series. So, you know, he, he was very busy. He went to D.C. Um, in the late 70s and at one point was writing, I don't know, seven books a month for them, um, wow. including Creative Firestorm, who was a sort of a D.C. attempt at a Marvel character. Uh, so it's sort of the Peter Parker concept, except in Firestorm, the star is Flash Thompson and the bully is Peter Parker. Which is interesting. Yeah, I actually, that was one, you know, my my brother every once in a while would pick up a DC comic and I read a Firestorm. And then I think he ended up on the Super Friends at one point. That's so right. he was That's a right. character that I, I knew a little bit, but... Uh, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess he, he, I'm sure he's still prevalent in the pages of comic books and I just. Not I, really. 
No, he's not. See, I just thought that was an interesting character. I would have liked to have seen seen more of him. Uh, but yeah. the interesting thing that sort of this era of Spider-Man that we're talking about, it was actually written initially. It was written by Tom DeFalco, who became the editor in chief of Marvel, and yes. he had, I guess, all these things planned out. And uh, ultimately, as there so often is, there's editorial changes. And, you know, things change sort of abruptly, basically. He's basically not able to write that anymore, not to, able to write Spider-Man. There was some great artwork at that point. We, you know, we referenced Ron Friends, and that's sort of the classic Jack Kirby-esque style, for lack of a better thing to call it. Yeah, I would say Friends is a really good, like when he's drawing Thor, like he, when they left Amazing Spider-Man, actually both those guys went to Thor. Right. And they were doing, he, he was doing a much more Jack Kirby-esque style on Thor. On mm -hmm. Spider-Man, I felt it was a very John Romita senior, which was also why it was a great time to be getting those Marvel Tales reprints at the same time, because the books kind of dovetailed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt like the same a continuation of the same series. But I love Ron Friends. I think he's one of the best storytellers in comics. He's really underappreciated uh, for that reason. I think because he has sort of an old school style. Even for the '80s, when you and I were reading it, it was considered kind of old fashioned. Yeah, even at that time, it was considered old fashioned. You know, like John Romita Jr. was sort of you know it was a it was a different style. Uh, well, which, okay. you know, he did Amazing Spider-Man and then he went on to do X-Men and I loved both of those titles. And I it just what one of the messages we traded, I was definitely from more of the John Romita senior camp. I just sort of yeah. liked that classic look. And I, I was impressed sort of early on when we got some of the, the flashier artistry that we got in the late 80s and early 90s. But once I realized it was at the expense of the storyline, uh, you know, like when Todd McFarlane first started drawing Amazing Spider-Man, it was still written by David um, Michelin or Michelin. I don't even know how you say yeah, his name. Michelin. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah Cause, and that's another thing too, is like when you read a name, you never hear it said aloud. So it's not yeah, a name that I've yeah. thought of much in the last 30 years, but he was still writing it. So the stories were good. Uh, I thought so, you know, Venom really caught on. So then there was a little too much Venom and then there was Carnage and I didn't like that. And that basically was kind of the beginning of the end. But at the, at the moment when he first started drawing Amazing Spider-Man in 298 and 300 and all these stories, uh, I thought it looked really cool and I was, I was interested. But then they gave Todd McFarlane his own Spider-Man comic and I, there, there were hardly any words in it. You know, like that Spider-Man number one was one of the best-selling comic books. And I was like, yeah, but nothing happened. You know, I mean, it was like part of a slow burn early story that was building up. But I was I was just really disappointed. And I was much more a fan of X-Men comics where there's way too much stuff happened in 22 pages. They somehow crammed it all in there. You know, way too much plot. So some happy medium is what I would have preferred. But yeah. I think that artist-driven thing that happened you know, with uh, McFarlane, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, I loved all those guys. Not Liefeld as much, but Jim Lee and McFarlane totally. And I think that was part of this thing we were talking about earlier, the sort of decompressed storytelling. And for the artists, it was because they wanted to draw splash pages. And if yeah. you look at the, I don't know if you, how many early issues of Spawn you've seen when McFarlane went off to Image, there are whole splash pages that he'll have, he'll cover in captions because he has to tell all the storytelling on one page. On one splash page. <laughs> not telling it in the book. 
Now, see, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, I I didn't see that much Spawn. I remember there was a there was an HBO animated series that I thought was actually really well done, and right. I thought that his style was very well suited for for that animated series. But that's kind of the familiarity that I had, and you know, I think that you know, there's speculation as to some of these artists contributing to the departure of people on some of these titles, specifically. Uh, Jim Lee getting too heavy of a hand in some of the X-Men storytelling and Chris Claremont had just kind of had enough after <laughs> after right. 17 years. And, you know, I liked that style a lot, but there's little things that bothered me. The fact that very suddenly Captain Britain's sister, Psylocke, Betsy Braddock, boom, she's Asian because I'm just going to assume Jim Lee thought she would look cooler that way. And she did. It was a cooler backstory. But I was like, well, why in the hell is this character suddenly Asian? Why didn't you just make a new character? You know, and that's one of those things that Will says a lot on the black cast. You know, it's just like, how about a new character? That you know, it's like, yes. do do we need the the young teen African American Iron Man? How about that's a new character? Just right. things like that. I often have that criticism too, and then I also realize I'm somewhat of a hypocrite because I also really love Rhodey as Iron Man. I did, yeah. That's actually when I started reading Iron Man. Tony yes, Stark was too. a drunk. I didn't know that he much about alky. him. He was in yeah. the bottle. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and the, and you'd see him every few issues. You know, he was living on the street or whatever. And yeah, Rhodey was the Iron Man that I that I started reading. And then Tony Stark comes back. It's sort of like a, a hero's return, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess this guy's all right. But what happened to Rhodey? Yeah, I, I I don't know. I think that there's a variety of reasons for that. You know, when you look at it fundamentally. The idea that Tony Stark had this huge drinking problem is is really strong storytelling. I mean, yes. now who knows what you know what they would have him addicted to, but it, it's so interesting some of those risks that were taken. And you know, just not being familiar with DC, I, I don't know that they weren't taking those risks. But a storyline in Captain America that I think people regretted after the fact but it was pretty amazing there there was this well, he's not a vigilante he's, he's a villain this guy named scourge who would go around and he'd go yes. to a bar where a bunch of supervillains hung out and he'd you know basically shoot the place up and kill 20 30 supervillains and they would die and stay dead now granted this was a way to kind of clean house some of the the lower impact some of them kind of embarrassing supervillains that there were and they were just being assassinated Oddly enough, in the pages of Captain America, but I was just kind of fascinated that there's just like, this guy's just going around killing supervillains. And, you know, this wasn't the way that the Punisher looks at the world, but it's sort of a similar idea. It's like, well, I'm killing bad people. And I don't know. I just think that there was some great storytelling in, in the late 80s and sort of the, the dawn of the early 90s. The comic book business had shifted a lot because they realized it was a bit more of a collector's market. And they started doing the pre-bagged issue, the trading card inside of it. And the idea was to get you to buy multiple copies, you know, the, the variant covers, which yes. I think variant yeah. covers can be really cool. But at the same time, it was so much more focused on selling a product than the content of it. And look, I get it. You know, look, it's all about sales and merchandising, especially now because it all feeds into the movie industry. I don't know. You just felt like what was happening in those pages was a lot less important to them. I don't know. Was I alone in that feeling, Jeff, or do you feel like that and, was the case? That's about when I bailed, when they introduced Carnage, which you felt like was sort of a money grab to sort of go back after the Venom dollars. 
uh, say, okay, I've kind of had enough and I've, I've sort of gotten out. Now, when I say bailed, I still read these books sporadically for years, but I didn't keep up with Amazing Spider-Man much after that. Yeah, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I just, once I was out, I was pretty much out. I mean, I remember being at, I think I was at a grocery store and I saw Amazing Spider-Man number 400 on the rack. And I'm like, oh, let me see what he's up to. And I didn't buy it. I just read it in the store. And there was a panel <laughs> that just completely reinforced that I, I didn't need to be reading. Aunt May's on her deathbed and I guess yes. she's alive now. And she's like, I always knew you were Spider-Man. And I'm like, no, no, you didn't. That's stupid. You never yes. knew. The whole point is that you didn't know. So I, I don't know. You know that, that ended up being a clone. They later yeah. came out to say, right? It was uh, right, which which only makes it worse. You know yes. that there were so many clones. You know that was a, that was speaking of Jerry Conway. That was a story that just a friend of mine somehow had the the original clone storyline, which. I think it was like Amazing Spider-Man 150-ish, somewhere in that range. And mm -hmm. like, that sounds ja right, yeah. yeah, and Jackal was in those. And I was reading yes. that. And there's a point where Peter Parker thinks that he's a clone. And I was reading it, you know, and he's like, I don't need to check the results because I know I'm not a clone. Yes. And I remember thinking, I was probably like 12. I'm like, you know, it'd be really stupid if they decided that that report said <laughs> that he actually was the clone and that the original Spider-Man is somewhere. And I know that, you know, again, they undid it, but at some point they did tell a story where it's like, Oh yeah, no, that Spider-Man's not Spider-Man. And I was just like, this was all well after my time with the clones That's and right. stuff. Yeah. Like a Gwen Stacy clone kind of showed up pretty late in my reading spectacular Spider-Man. And nope. I, I vaguely remember some stories there, but I really hung on to X-Men for a long time. Uh, I'd say I read the X-Men up and well, I collected the X-Men up until about 1998. And I, I had like two years worth just kind of sitting and I hadn't read. It was just uncanny X-Men and regular X-Men. I didn't get Wolverine anymore. I didn't get anything else. And okay. I was like, I still haven't read those issues. I have like two years worth. And I'm like, if I'm not reading these after two years, I, I guess that my loyalty is just stronger than it needs to be you know went mostly cold turkey like every once in a while there'd be something that came up and i i would read but i didn't i didn't really read comics regularly for a long time and you know look i mean in i turned 18 in 1994 and i went on to college and i did collect some comics through college but obviously that had something to do with the the age i was just sort of the nature of the comic book industry i just wasn't as excited anymore you know and yeah. i mean at one point i don't even know how many books i bought in a month but it was a lot i mean there were three spider-man titles all of which i liked and you know there were various avengers and solo you know there were uh, the avengers the west coast avengers there were solo avengers there was of course captain america had a book thor had a book and iron man you know and i think all these people probably still have their own books but just at some point it was probably just like i, I don't know it's just Something happened that, yes, I was older and I needed to maybe spend less time reading comic books because I was busy, but just the desire wasn't there anymore. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you said you read sporadically, but was there a point where you just kind of slowed down and, and really cut back on what you were reading? Yeah, 2011. Okay. <laughs> so not that well, long ago. Yeah. No, no, no. I was actually going to ask, did you ever have any ambition to, like, did you ever think when you're reading a comic that maybe I want to write these things one day or? Oh yeah. I, I had the thought that I was 
you know, that I could write. And God bless my mom. She actually like would take me to art lessons once a week. I was not good, but I had fun with the art class. And, you know, it was mostly to teach like painting and stuff. That art teacher, it was like in the basement of her house. She was great and she was really nice. And, you know, she tried to help me understand sort of basically drawing you know, a body with, you know, there's those like wooden models and things that you would use. And I, I at least understood it. I just think my, my ability wasn't really there, but I would write and draw some terrible comic books that I don't think I have anymore. But, uh, you know, a friend of, of mine and, and I, we sort of came up with these characters and sure. I legitimately don't remember much about what it was, but uh, I think at a certain point, I just didn't feel like that was, that was like my strong suit. I, I I became much more interested in sort of writing for television. I thought that I was fairly decent at writing jokes and I did stand up for a little while. Uh, so I think that that kind of became my creative outlet, uh, yeah. performing on stage. When I was in high school, I was in some plays and I did improv comedy in college. None of these were world changing performances, obviously, but I think that that's sort of where my outlet went. But, It is a good transition because what I do want to talk about, and I mentioned it in the introduction, is that you do indeed have your own comic book. You have The Alternate, which you were uh, kind enough to uh, send me on Comixology, which is where people can find it if they don't. I feel like if you're interested in comic books, you probably do know Comixology, C-O-M-I-X-O-L-O-G-Y.com. I did not know Comixology, and you were very nice to me and just explained like what it was and how I would be able to read it. It's actually a pretty great service, and they not only do they have you know your comic book, uh, my friend Zach Wilson has a book called Kid Cop that's on there, and they have a lot of you know all of your standard you know major titles. And they'll sometimes have free issues, you know, like yeah. you've, you've kind of brought to my attention, like they had the original uh, Luke Cage number one in there. Uh, the Claremont Jim Lee X-Men number one is there as we're talking today. So it's actually a pretty cool service. And talk a little bit about how you decided you were going to sit down and create a comic book. Was the alternate the first one that you did or had you done something before that? Well, I think talking about why did I stick with it, perhaps I mean, reading books a little longer than you. Sure. I had, you know, obviously I had ambition to be a creator. And so I had, like you, I'd been you know, creating my own characters when I was a kid and uh, got a little more serious about it and went to uh, Savannah College of Art and Design, got a degree in sequen- sequential art, which is just a fancy name for comic books, basically, and um, had wanted to do comics. And so, yeah, I, I started, I actually wrote this in, I think 2000, maybe 2002, I wrote the first issue and it kind of sat on the shelves and uh, you know, long story short, I eventually hooked up with some, I write and draw, but I'm a slow artist. So I hooked up with some, uh, a couple of artists who were, were willing to draw the book and that's how we got the first issue produced. And yeah, like Comixology, like you say, the, the great thing about it, if you, you can, you know, get a book printed through the, um, and distribute it through comic shops, which is easy enough. Um, but you have to list it in a you know a previews magazine. You have to get X number of orders before they'll sell it. Comicsology is much more simple. You finish it up digitally, throw it up there, they accept it, and it goes up a month later. Uh, yeah, I love the digital aspect of it. So the book itself is just a superhero comic. 
And the basic premise is it's about a guy who has superpowers. He's the only person on his earth who has superpowers. Yeah, and I kind of like that to sort of speak to the, you know, he's a very Tony Stark type. He's hugely popular, you know, almost yeah. like a rock star slash He does movie what most star. people would do if they yeah. got superpowers is he uses it to get fame and fortune. Yeah, he's he's a lot more Tony Stark than Bruce Wayne. You know, Bruce Correct. Wayne, of course, you know, shows up at public events, but Tony Stark like flaunts it. And the character, as we meet him in his in his reality, is known as Metal. And talk a little bit. You know, we won't get too deep into it because I'd like people to read it and sort of see what happens. Sure. But talk about basically what happens and why the series is called the Alternate. Exactly. Yeah, the basic setup, and this is not much of a spoiler, it happens in the first 12 pages. Yes. He is eventually, his Earth is attacked by aliens, and since he's the only guy with superpowers, he's the only person who can stop it, which he manages to successfully. In the process, however, he gets transported to an alternate Earth where it's littered with superheroes. And one of the superheroes on that Earth happens to be another version of himself who is smarter, stronger, and more heroic. Yes, I, I sort of like that it, it was all of those things, that the other version of him was, you know, at first you become pretty aware that he's just stronger, but you're like, oh, no, he's better than him in every way possible. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's kind of the the the, the series, generally speaking, is meant to explore the difference between these two characters and what made them different, which that kind of, we dove into that a little bit in issue four. Yeah, um, no, no, I think that it's interesting and I, I hope that uh, people check it out. I appreciated you, first of all, just saying, hey, I think you'd like to check out my comic. And, you know, I guess you were my Facebook friend because you liked the Dennis Miller show. I'm just assuming that that's how our paths even crossed at all, right? Yeah, absolutely. yeah, that's, that was it, yeah. Yeah, and I think you know, we started up a Twitter Twitter conversation based on that. Uh, I'm not sure if it started off because of that Hulk Secret Wars cover or. Yeah, that was that by my recollection, just sort of going back through my Facebook Messenger. That was kind of the, the first thing. And, you know, you started talking to me and a few other people that I hadn't really had any kind of dialogue with. Now, you talked about how you're an artist, but you're a slow artist. So that basically answers the question as to why you did the covers for the alternate. But you actually needed to get some other artists artists involved. But the thing that I found interesting is that you did the lettering and the lettering by my estimation is done by computers now in most comic books, isn't it? Or is that it? Is, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. And there's, it's funny though, because what I do remember from when I read comic books, there was basically very similar style, except the only one that ever stood out was a guy named Tom Orzachowski. He would yes. do the lettering for the X-Men, and I think it was because he must have had really small fingers, and he could write smaller because Chris Claremont would have so much dialogue and so many, you know, so many things in, in the various you – know, the boxes and the balloons, and he probably had to fit twice as many words in, into, into a script. So he definitely wrote differently. You and, talk about a guy who worked hard for his money. Yeah. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. I mean, Chris Claremont, especially toward the end of his run, you would see two characters fighting, and in the in the space of time that a punch was thrown, they'd be doing you know Shakespearean soliloquies. It was crazy. And I'm actually friends with him on Facebook and with uh, Chris Claremont since, or Tom Orzechowski. With uh, Tom Orzechowski. Is he still in comic books? Is he still? I mean, because I don't know that there's a reason for letterers at this point. Well, no, that's a good question. Well, so so yes. Um, I don't know if he himself is still in. Last I saw, he was he he actually went on to letter Spawn with McFarlane, oh, okay. and he did that for. He may still be doing. It. I actually don't know. Um, sure. I haven't read that book in several years. But yeah, so so what happens is the 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 fonts are all generated. They're generated fonts, but there are still guys 
who, and some of the guys transitioned, like I think Ori Zakowski himself transitioned from doing it by hand to using a font based on his handwriting to do the lettering. So you'll still see it like a letterer's credit and that person, you know, you still have to do it. You just do it all mechanically. Now we have to place the word balloons, draw the tails, you know, they go the, the balloon tails that go from you know, the character's mouths. Right. And the caption boxes and all that. So someone still has to do it, but it's definitely sped up the process and has made it a little easier for somebody like myself, who I'm not a professional letterer, to sort of pick it up. And as long as I can do a decent job of placing the word balloons, you know, I'm not going to screw things up too badly. Right. So, okay. So that does sort of address that aspect of it. So it wasn't actually you writing all of the words into the balloons. It, it was, in fact, sort of a, a mechanical version of lettering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You just type it up and, and sort of place it in an attractive way. So, all right. Well, see, now that makes more sense because I was just like, well, if you don't have time to draw, how do you have time to write out all those words? But, uh, well, now, now it makes sense. Uh, so as we referenced, you know, and again, the comic book is called The Alternate, and we're talking to Jeff, Jeff Winstead about it. Uh, we're talking about a lot of things, but right now we're talking about the alternate, and you can find it at Comixology. The, uh, there's some different artists on the series, and you mentioned to me once when we were talking about it, after I had read the first couple issues, you kind of had a, a very specific plan that you wanted to do, which sort of was realized in the first issue, right. uh, the Wizard of Oz plan, I, which I thought was a great idea. Uh, so yes. talk a little bit about that approach, and then you can sort of go on from there about how the collaboration with the different artists happened. Right. So the book is sort of a labor of love. And so you do what you can to find guys. And I've been lucky enough to find really good artists from all over the world, really, um, through the magic of the Internet to work on the book. And you kind of have to sell them on the idea and hope they like the scripts. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to get guys who did. And so the the first issue, you know, as we've already given away, when he transitions from one, the main character from one Earth to another, I had this idea of like Wizard of Oz, instead of being black and white and then color, you'd have one artist drawing his earth and another artist drawing a different earth. And really successful, I think, as you said, in the first issue. The problem was both those guys left the book after the first issue. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, actually, I think one guy did a few pages in issue two. And so I had to come up with ways to, in the second issue, to address that, which I tried to do in dialogue, which was kind of a fun exercise. And eventually, you know, after issue two, I kind of just let it go. So I think the guy did issue three, he's in Finland. Oh, wow. And he did a really good job. He's a really great classic superhero style. And the guy who did issue four, and he's doing issue five also, um, Alex Graychuk, he's Canadian. Uh, he works in animation. He's got a, you know, he actually has an IMDb listing. You know, does a lot of cool, he's just storyboarding and that type of thing for pretty cool animation projects. But yeah, all those guys are really good. But like I say, all of us are kind of working on it between other gigs. Yeah. So the nice thing, if you haven't read the book yet, there are four issues available. And we are working on five. And I may have a, a a slow artist drawing issue six. I might come back and do it myself, <laughs> since it's, it's proceeding slowly anyway. I might as well jump in and give it a shot. Yeah, well, if you're if you're yeah. as slow as you say you are, you could start, you know, issue six or seven now, and then exactly. by the time that the five and six are done, then you'll actually have three in a row. Uh, but there, that'd be great. I, I hope you get to continue telling the story. And uh, you know, the thing about comicsology too is that you know when you buy a, a physically printed comic book. You know, it's, I don't know, what, $5? I don't even know. And Yeah, they're getting to be like a standard Marvel comic is three ninety nine. Yeah. Um, 
DC is still holding some of theirs at 299, but those are starting to rise too. Yeah. Now, you know, it's funny because I remember sort of reading something and I don't know, it was some, one of those free, it was like comic shop news that I would get yes. for free when there were finally comic book stores. And I remember that's, you know, we're, we're of a certain age, so we, we remember, but when comic books went over a, when they hit the dollar mark, everybody's like, well, that's the end. You know, yes, they used to only yes. go up a nickel at a time and they went from, I think, 65 to 75 and then from 75 to a dollar. And everybody's like, all right, well, now they're going to just cost. And when you think about the fact that over 30 years, how much it's gone up and how much other magazines cost, it's probably not that much. But when your target audience was kids, to have them be sixty, seventy-five cents, it made a big difference. Like going up to seventy-five cents, I think I had to make a couple decisions, you know, yes. about ones that I was going to buy and what I wasn't going to buy. And then there'd be a double-sized issue, which was a dollar fifty. You know, there's a whole thing. And now it's just to see how much they cost. It's I don't know, but maybe that's nothing to kids today or or even you know adults who still read comic books. Maybe they don't care. It's pretty uh, crazy. I love how they used to, like the increment used to be a nickel. And yeah. It was a dime. Then all of a sudden it was a quarter. It's like who made the decision that a quarter was yeah. going to be the next increment? You right. Know, and like, then it was, seven, yeah. And it was like I remember it going from a dollar to dollar twenty five. But then yes. it went from like a dollar fifty to two dollars. Yeah. You know, you know, and they were just like, yeah, we're yeah, we're just going to keep on going. And it was still on that really cheap newsprint for a while. Like it, they didn't switch to the glossy paper until it was already like over $2, I think. You know, Marvel at first they had sort of like deluxe editions where it's like you can get your comic on the glossy paper or you can still buy it on the newsprint. I'm like, well, damn it, I'm buying it on the newsprint cuz it's cheaper. <laughs> but even that didn't last very long. They they didn't offer it for very long. So Anyway, so that was just sort of some of the things that I, that I think comiXology is good from sort of a financial standpoint. It's kind of like, you know, like throwing an extra comic into a Westfield Comics box. You can sort of check it out and be like, you know, I'm kind of interested in this. I want to see what's going on. And so I would say anybody who's listening who likes comics and if they, they're enjoying the conversation that I'm having with Jeff, you should check out an issue of The Alternate and uh, let us know what you think at Blatcast. And of course, he's at Jeff Winstead. And uh, we're, we'll be happy to share the thoughts of anybody who checks it out and wants to share it with us. This is a great testament to the fact that, you know, if you listen to the Blackcast even sporadically, you can probably be on the Blackcast too. Because, right. you know, <laughs> Jeff listens sometimes, and, you know, I think that when there's a specific comic book-related episode that we do, that probably it speaks more to. And sometimes I'll have the thought, like, hey, you might want to hear this one. You know, well, I told you the main reason I listen sporadically is that I never leave my house. And right. so when you talk about movies that are just in theaters, I'm not seen them yeah so i will go back and listen to like your doctor strange review i just do it six months after the fact yeah right exactly so, i know a few people that uh, you know i I'll, I'll get an email or a tweet or something six months after the fact you know and they're they were like oh i finally saw deadpool you know and i was like right, oh my god right. that's right i forgot that you know but that's why we always say you know that our movie specific episodes are behind the iron curtain of being spoiler filled. So, you know, that you kind of exactly. need to wait, but I also try not to put other content in there, uh, you know, so that it's like, it's all right to skip it. It's not like we have ongoing storylines, uh, on the podcast, <laughs> but just, just in case, you know, look, I could talk to you about, uh, comics, uh, for uh, another hour, but I do kind of want to move on for uh, a few minutes here towards the end of our conversation. And, 
then let's talk first about Legion because we haven't really sure. talked about it on the black cast and uh, we'll, we'll talk about Logan in a moment and it'll be a little bit more spoilery. So I want to put that kind of at the end of the episode. Uh, so people, you know, will know at that point to stop listening if they don't want it to be spoiled. I think Legion, it's fairly easy to talk about without spoiling anything. Yes. As long as you withhold one piece of information about exactly. his backstory, which is something that I don't believe I've actually said on the black cast. A lot of us yeah, know exactly. something very important about David that if you're just watching the show, you have no idea. So that's why I'm sort of trying to not talk about it. So we can talk about him as a very powerful mutant and sort of the way that he's portrayed on the series, but let's not sort of delve into that aspect of his backstory, if you don't mind. Right. Yeah, we can talk about pretty much the first four issues and not give away anything because hardly anything has happened. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I liked when we started seeing his powers and we yeah. started to see just how powerful he is because th this is not a spoiler. In the comics, he is very possibly the, if not one of the most powerful uh, mutants on the well not just on the planet like in the universe because as i said recently when we were recording our logan episode that one of the most powerful mutants in in the galaxy because of just the amount of things that he can do and we're just starting to see some of it you know i mean he's sort of yeah trapped in his astral plane but then when he really wants to he's like okay well i'm not going to be on the astral plane anymore because he can kind of do anything, you know? At some point, they establish that he can time travel. Those are not my favorite kind of characters, the all-powerful, the all you know? I, I, I don't like the fact that in Superman, the Richard Donner Superman, that he's able to just kind of fly backwards around the world and undo things. I kind of like when there's consequences. Of course, in comic books, there are usually not consequences for very long, you know, even Jean so Grey. So you really didn't like Superman 4 when he looked at the Great Wall of China <laughs> and rebuilt itself? No, we have talked about that a number of times. That that's, su that's Superman 4. Superman 4 is batted in so many ways yes. that I, I almost feel like I should watch it again, but I just, it, it's not like good, bad. It's just, it's just bad. It's just bad, bad, yeah. But so talk a little bit about the way you feel like they've taken this character and kind of had us get to know him sort of on this visual medium. And if you feel like it's been true to the character and if you're enjoying it. I just watched episode four. And up until that episode, I was kind of willing to give the slow pacing the benefit of the doubt and kind of enjoying it. But I think now they, they're really reaching a point because I believe it's only eight episodes this first season. Correct. Where they need to start giving you something. Like there's, there's something to be said from a storytelling standpoint about audience confusion. Like I said, that's a nice thing to have in your in your bag of tricks as a storyteller. But you kind of start giving people some information to yeah. you know, feed, feed that. It's a little slow in that sense. It, it's been very slow, and that's actually one of the things I was saying is that I think it will be much more satisfying as a binge. When yes. you're able to watch all eight episodes and you know, you'll kind of get rewarded much faster. But those of us that are watching it now, we kind of get rewarded on a week to week basis yeah. and we have to wait. And it's very confusing and it sort of plays with our perceptions of reality. It's very mind bending. And as I've, I think I mentioned to you in a, in a, in a message that the fact that it's on at 10 o'clock 
means that I may not be able to keep my eyes open for every second of it. So that just adds to the confusion. And I, I'm awake through most of it, but there's definitely little things I miss. And on that show, it's just like, well, you if you miss the wrong thing, you're going to get even like doubly confused. Oh, yeah. So, and the show looks fantastic. It's yeah. really sophisticated looking. I think the writing's and the, the acting's incredible. Um, it's a well put together show. It gets a little pleased with itself because it's so stylish. And I wish they would dial that back just a little bit because it actually gets in the way of the storytelling sometimes. Yeah, the one that the one that you watched was it. I don't know if it was episode four or five, where it basically starts with the guy who's been on the astral plane since the seventies. Yeah, yeah, I think that's episode four. Yeah, so yeah. that was basically you know, and you look at the running time when you record it, and you see it's like an hour and seven minutes, and so yes. there's four minutes of this guy preaching into the camera, yes. and I'm like, well, that's four minutes they could have saved right there, and you know, that's the thing too about Noah Hawley who is doing the show. I loved his show Fargo, but. Sometimes it would be 90 minutes, sometimes it'd be 75 minutes. There were just these vastly different running times, which as a creator, I'm sure is a great liberty to have. But as a viewer, I sometimes think that if you're stuck to a 60 minute TV show, you're going to have to tell your story more economically and possibly better. So I I don't love how long the running time is on, on that show, but yeah. I, I can certainly understand why it would be appealing to creator. And I think when the season is over, I'll probably have some degree of satisfaction. But Agent Starling and I have talked about this. I've talked to Will about this. He is really just kind of waiting to see what he can do. Like I haven't talked to him since he saw like the second episode. So he, you know, he doesn't like Gotham because Batman's not Batman in it. Sure. And I completely understand that point of view. And he's just like, well, I want him to be whoever Legion is. I want to see that. And it's, it's a very slow build because it is such a complex character. I mean, he's got these multiple personalities inside of him and he's got all these, you know, crazy powers that I don't know what we're going to actually learn at the end of eight episodes. But I think that they're smart enough to make it satisfying in some way. I would hope so. And because at this point, from what I remember of the stories that I've read with the character in New Mutants, they're not really adapting a specific storyline. This is kind of like they're taking the character, but the, the trappings are unique to the show largely. Yeah. So I I don't know. I think it's a great show. And I think anybody who likes X-Men stories and, you know, super powered stories, I think it's, it's worth checking out. If you're listening to this and you haven't watched it yet, you just go ahead and wait for it to all be over and watch it all at once. You'll probably enjoy it more, but I I uh, hope this more sophisticated look and style of storytelling that we have with this and the Netflix shows is the future of superhero shows, because there is something to be said for that. So that's, that's nice. It's moving that direction and away from, uh, you will have talked about this, the DC shows, which are hella cheesy. <laughs> yeah, and and, and I don't I don't really watch those, but I I've seen episodes. Well, actually, no, I've only seen the Flash, and I saw a bunch of Supergirl, and yeah, they it's a completely different aesthetic, and yeah, yeah. these. Like Legion looks great. It looks like any other drama on FX and the Marvel Netflix shows also look great. So I I think that there's something to be said for that. And, you know, look, I won't just knock DC. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. does not look great. Uh, You can argue you can argue with the storytelling if you want. But just visually, the storyline that had Ghost Rider in it looked pretty cool. But day in, day out, the episodes don't look like there's the same production value that we get from Legion or the Netflix series. Uh, So, you know, I don't want it to seem like I'm just bagging on DC's uh, TV output. Uh, All right. So one thing that I guess we should uh, talk about in in our final minutes here, and this will be in the spoiler zone. So everybody who is 
waiting to see Logan for some reason or another. There's a lot of reasons why people can't get out of the house. Our friend Agent Starling hasn't seen it yet, although I will be seeing it with him on Wednesday. I said I'd be happy to see it again if he wants to go. So I will uh, be seeing it for a second time, and I'll be excited. Uh, I referenced this on Blackcast 215. I sort of teased this episode because you saw it and you were underwhelmed. So I want to give you plenty of time to talk about what you were disappointed by, but also let us know what you did think that they did a good job with. Right. I'm going to put myself at odds with like the 98% of fandom. Yeah. I know you're, I you're, you're, okay. you're in flagrant disregard of the tomato meter, sir. Exactly. Um, but I will say about the movie that I was happy to see a superhero movie that finally had the bravery to take on big corn syrup. <laughs> the, the corn syrup plot in this movie was just bizarre. Um, yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, but I'm someone that is so, outspoken against high fructose corn syrup and i try to never talk about it because i actually get so angry for the simple reason that it made coca-cola taste not as good you know yes. if if you yes. drink I'm it totally if you if you drink it around the world it tastes it tastes completely different it's of course garbage and it's bad for you but it tastes better everywhere else but because we have these corn subsidies it's not just coca-cola do you call it soda do you call it pop or i don't want to i don't want to speak out of turn here do oh you, yeah i i for some reason where i grew up everything was called coke yeah i've i've heard of places like that yeah it's like do you do you want a coke yeah what kind of pepsi i've i've exactly. actually heard that that's a regional dialect yes. too yes. so anyway we could do a whole episode on on corn subsidies, uh, but it, it it drives me crazy. And I did think it was interesting that it did crop up in the middle of the movie. Uh, right, that, it was a strange subplot yeah. for a superhero flick. Now that said, I'm totally on board. Like we avoid high fructose corn syrup at all costs. And I've seen the big documentary, um, King Corn. So I totally get it. But it was just a weird thing to have. In a it was weird because you could still tell the story without it even being that. You know, if they're going to stop at that farmhouse and run into people and that doesn't need to be part of it. But I guess that Mangold had said that it's a political movie sure. and I didn't see it as a political movie. That is one of the things that I didn't really think about when I was watching it. I'm like, oh, that is actually kind of a political statement. Yeah. Yeah, I, not to get into all that stuff, but I mean, the political stuff hit me right away. Well, you know, that's like, fine, though. I mean, the the idea, and Jeff spoke about it, uh, Captain Neo yes. spoke about it in 215. I didn't think about it as refugees, but obviously, sure, that's a that's a very easy comparison. I was just very wrapped up in the idea that it was a group of mutants who busted out of a lab. But right. obviously, there are some overtones that, you know, look, even if this movie came out last year, you know, not having oh, anything sure. to do with the Trump administration, even if it came out last year, they still would be commenting on immigration and, and sort of all, all of these issues and refugees and what do we do with them? So, I mean, it's a political issue that it's not new. It's not new since January 20th. It's, exactly, it's certainly something yeah. that's been going on for a while. So you you were struck by that stuff. Did it take you out of the movie and make you enjoy it less? Oh, not really. I mean, I, I anticipated as much. It, it wasn't wasn't an issue. It just, what I find is there have been, I don't know how many, seven X-Men movies now. The thing where you're fighting against the U.S. government to some extent or other. I know in this movie it was sort of like a corporate it was a big co yeah it was a big corporation that was working yeah. with the government all but two of the x-men movies have the villain has been the government essentially yeah no it's, i i i think you're right by the way i'd have to i'd have to really take the time to think about because even the sentinel project is a government right. project so and you're probably right you know because it's like 
Magneto being a tool of the government or someone else being a tool of the government. But you're right. That's it's it's very familiar territory. You're right. And not just for the X-Men movies. I mean, you see it all the Bourne movies like it's just all the time, you know, so it gets to be to me as far as I feel a bit like lazy storytelling in a way mm-hmm. that was that was sort of minor stuff. In general, I actually agree with all the stuff that you and Earth One Jeff liked about the movie. Yeah, <laughs> Earth um, Earth One yeah. Jeff, I like that. <laughs> like, I loved all that stuff. You, the, the The acting was great. Um, the setting, the filming was fantastic. But so I just had some like nitpicky. Well, not really nitpicky. I, th- I think what I noticed when you and Jeff were talking about the movie, like things that I thought were big problems, you guys kind of glossed over. Like you knew right away when he met Eric LaSalle's family that those guys were toast. I felt bad for him. As soon as they met him, I'm like, oh, no, why does he, Why do they have to die? They seem like such a nice family. Which made me ask myself, why does Wolverine not know that if he, if they have dinner with these people, if they spend the night with these people, they're going to die? Yeah, and I think that to some extent, it's just Charles was so adamant about it. He's like, you know what? I'm sure he's right. All right, we have to keep moving, but... All right, yeah, let's do this for Charlie, you know, and uh, yeah. unfortunately... And I know Wolverine has, mo- has memory issues, but he did the same thing to a family in X-Men Origins Wolverine. <laughs> well, the problem with X-Men Origins Wolverine, and there are many problems, but it was also <laughs> retconned out by Days of Future Past. So That's it actually, true. Well, so it actually so. didn't happen, but you're That's right. Uh, so I guess that Wolverine doesn't remember that happened in the way that Fox, the movie studio, hopes that none of us remember that it happened. Um, exactly. That's funny because I rewatched that a few years ago and I for- completely forgot that, uh, that that was the same. Oh, Logan will just never learn, will he? <laughs> I also thought that the um, having the clone of the younger Wolverine as like sort of I don't know if you would call him the main villain, but yeah. a villain in the movie was a storytelling mistake, a bit of a... No, I, I, I would have I would have liked to have seen, you know, there are definitely opportunities for characters they could have worked in there. I think it didn't need to be Sabretooth, but, you know, there, there are certainly villains that it could have been. There are people from the Weapon X project. We could have, I guess we, we've seen Lady Deathstrike in a movie before, so it sure. probably wouldn't have been her, but... I agree. To have just a clone of Wolverine, it's kind of a cool idea. Like, oh, there's no way you can beat a younger, stronger, faster version of yourself. But you're right. I think I would have to agree that that would definitely be a storytelling mistake because it's an opportunity for something else. You don't have to have Wolverine fight Wolverine. Yeah, I think one reason was it it undercut the idea. So when Logan took the green injectable liquid later in the movie and we got to see him for a brief moment be the uh, more... Uh, energetic version of himself i felt like having already seen a much more young energetic version of wolverine even though he was evil undercut that moment of you know seeing him in full force as the wolverine we always knew no no i think it would have had much more impact because this let's say 150 to 200 year old wolverine that takes the green juice that is all energetic and moving really fast still not operating at the efficiency of the x24 clone so you're right it's just like Okay, I guess. I mean, I guess he's like able to kick some more ass, but not enough ass, you know. So also not for nothing. If you're going to generate mutants out of a test tube, wouldn't you start with like I don't know, maybe Storm or Jean Grey or somebody who could do like massive damage? Well, I guess the question would be whose DNA do they have, and they would have Logan slash James Howlett's DNA. So do they do they have some of the X Men, and that's obviously opportunity for future storytelling if they do or if they decide that they they did because none of none of these kids that we saw seem to have had any of the powers of 
you know, well-known mutants. But uh, yeah, that's an interesting question, though, because if you can generate a mutant out of a test tube, there are other ways to go. Certainly, you, you have know. to generate him and then do all the animanium grafting. But I mean, it's a big process. if there's anybody to get, how about <laughs> how about Charles Xavier? You know, I mean that, yeah, you know, right. you, but then that's a control issue. So I guess that that's the idea, true. the Weapon X idea is still like we can control this thing, even though throughout all the years of history, we have not been able to control any participant in the Weapon X project. Correct. This, this is the time that we'll be able to do it. So, <laughs> uh, so was there anything else that bothered you about the movie? Well, the, the, you know, I can go on and on, but the and again, I thought the movie was about a seven out of 10. That's pretty um, good. That's better than a lot of superhero movies. Yeah, that's true. But the adamantium bullet thing makes zero sense. Yeah, I actually had uh, somebody message me about that, wanting more of an explanation about the adamantium bullet. Uh, you I can mean, see how per- perhaps it could kill the older Wolverine, but the idea that it could kill the younger Wolverine doesn't track with anything they were establishing in the context of even this movie. Well, yeah, because the adamantium bullet in his brain, sure, it would go in there, but then his brain as part of the healing factor would kick in and then spit it out of his brain in theory. And I think, you know, Jeff was talking about in civil war, Logan is basically stripped down to an adamantium skeleton, but then he, you know, regenerates all of his body parts. So if he can survive that, he probably could survive a bullet in the brain, but I don't know. I mean, I guess if it's in your brain at all, maybe just everything stops. It's it's a good question, which I guess we needed some more explanation for, but then also in a movie, you know, in movies, they feel like we don't need explanations. I mean, they've made four Transformers movies without ever explaining anything. I can see how that's a, it's a valid question. One that I'm interested in hearing from more people on. So please tweet us at Blatcast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T, or uh, mention it on our Facebook page. But uh, yeah, the adamantium bullet was definitely, it, it was a very deus ex machina. It was just like... All right, so we're going to see this again later. And like I said in episode 215, when X-23, as soon as she had it, you're like, okay, I know what's going to happen. We've already met X-24. We know she has it. And we know where that bullet's going to go. So, yeah. So, yeah, there could have been been some some stronger storytelling, I suppose. Christian, when you're watching this stuff, I know Heather saw the movie with you. Does she nudge you? Like or after the movie, does she break it down like Robert McKee style about <laughs> storytelling points? You know, there are times where she will, and she'll be like, "Well, I don't understand. Like, if this happened, why didn't that?" She didn't do that with this one, but there are times. There are are movies that I'm enjoying, and she'll just start laughing at something that happens that this didn't ha- <laughs> that didn't happen. When I'm like, "Wait, there's nothing funny," and then she'll explain to me, you know, something that she thought was kind of ridiculous. That happened in Batman Superman, although I actually forget specifically what it was, but there was something that she just laughed at. It, it I was defi- just curious because I knew she writes. Yeah. Oh, no, no. There, it definitely happens. But you know what? I think that my, my wife cried a lot during the movie. And, you know, they did almost get me just watching Logan be dead because, of, you know, I've, I've known Logan probably since before my wife was born. So, you know, I've known the character for a long time and just seeing him dead, you know, it was like, it got to me a little bit, but uh, 
She cried then. I don't know if she cried for Professor Xavier, to tell you the truth. But uh, so, so it was a very emotional movie for her. So I don't know. It's a good question. I she'll listen to this at some point. She usually falls behind on the broadcast, but when she listens, she will probably be able to to tell me whether or not she thought there were holes in the story. And it could be as simple as she found a bunch of holes in the story, but she knew I was enjoying it so much that she just didn't want to poke a hole in 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 my fun sure. superhero balloon. So yeah, I'd be curious to know if she if she thinks there's a total number that you cannot exceed on a guy passing out in a movie. Well, we must have like eight scenes of Wolverine looking at a ceiling. And and I mean, he passed out twice in the same scene, really close together. That <laughs> right. was one of that. The second time, I'm like, oh come on, just stay awake, Logan. You know? Right. We get it. It's it's hard to be Wolverine. But, uh, you know, just get your shit together. (laughs) Yeah. So but, uh, you know, look, giving it a seven, that's pretty good. Just by way of comparison, what are some what are some other superhero movies that you've liked in the last, say, couple years that you thought were better than this? Well, just to compare, because I just saw Doctor Strange on video, it was an interesting comparison. So I think Doctor Strange worked better as a narrative. But I also think it was at the same time a better movie, but more forgettable. So I'm not really sure. I'm trying to analyze in my own mind why that's the case. Yeah. I think it's probably because we have all the connection to Patrick Stewart and Hugh, Jack, Hugh Jackman playing those two characters. So the emotional baggage that we're bringing to it really helps um, give it a level of gravitas that maybe Doctor Strange didn't have. Although I thought it was a well well put together movie, but well, like I said, forgettable in, in the long run. Yeah, I definitely can understand that. I think Logan, of course, is getting the kind of reaction that it is because it's not your standard superhero movie. Whereas even Doctor Strange dealing with all the mysticism and everything, it is it is a much more traditional superhero story, even though, you know, he's a master of the mystic arts. Right. He's, it, the story it, structure of these origins, you know, we've seen that so many times now yeah. that, you know, I kind of wish they had maybe started the movie when he already was the Doctor Strange that we know, like full on Doctor Strange and until the origin and flashback, perhaps. Yeah, I, I think that we could certainly use that with some character. I mean, I wonder if we're going to get that with Black Panther because he's already been introduced. Oh, yeah, you know? that's true. So. Uh, but you know what? They might decide they don't want to do it that way. But I, yeah. I would hope that we get to see him. And, you know, I'm certainly interested in his origin story as it fits into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So if they want to tell the origin, that's fine. But it would be good yeah, if it kind of starts out and maybe we see it over over several brief flashbacks. I don't sure. need yeah. the whole first you know 45 minutes of the movie to be that. But. I don't even know if that's coming out this year. We've got we've got Wonder Woman coming out before too long, and you know, obviously, I don't even know. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's a this year release. I think it yeah. might be eighteen. No, I think you're right, and I think that uh, Infinity War is also next year. So, Marvel's got a a somewhat lighter slate this year, I guess. You know, I'm I'm missing something. There's something. Yeah. Oh big. yeah. Well, it's a good time to be a fan when you can't remember how many movies are coming out. Yeah. Right, exactly, because as we've talked about on the Blackcast, like the superhero movies, superhero movies in general before the Tim Burton Batman were yeah. pretty much non-existent. Oh, yeah. And even after that, they were like the 1990 Captain America, and they were, of course, not good. <laughs> but oh yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. I'm so stupid. Thor Ragnarok is coming out this year. Spider-Man okay. Homecoming, which I'm very excited about, but I don't think of that as a Marvel movie, even though he's part of the universe now. Sure. And sure, of course, yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So sure. they have three great movies coming out this year. But to that point, yeah, we've gotten spoiled in the modern era with having so many superhero movies. Uh, I'll I'll say most of them good. Yeah. Even, oh, yeah, definitely. Even, yeah. even the ones that aren't 
the best are still pretty good and are definitely better than, you know, what we would have had in the in the early 90s or really the 90s in general weren't great for superhero movies. You know, I mean, yeah. we we didn't get a Superman movie in the 90s at all, even though uh, Tim Burton tried to make one, one with with Nick Cage. Did you see that uh, documentary about that? I have not. Have you seen it? Yeah, I have. It's it's it fascinating. Good? I okay. don't think that that Superman movie would have been very good. I but think it wouldn't have. I've read the script. Yeah, at least at least the one that Kevin Smith wrote. Yeah, it's it it goes through so many changes after that. Yeah. Uh, okay. I I would definitely recommend that everybody check out that documentary. I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately, uh, but it, it's because I forget what the movie was supposed to be, what the what it was going to be called. You know, there's the, like something Superman Reborn. Or... So that movie was going to be called Superman Lives. And that then I think fun. the documentary is called The Death of Superman Lives, colon, What Happened? So <laughs> that's the full title. I don't know where you can find it, but uh, it's out there. And it, it, for anybody that likes comic books, Marvel, DC, it doesn't matter. It's very interesting. Anybody who likes movie making, in all honesty, just to watch how a project can get changed so much and just get derailed and basically scrapped despite how much money that they already spent on it. So, well... Jeff, the next time we talk, we'll have to uh, pick it up right there with the death of Superman lives. And, uh, you know, I'll, we'll make it a homework assignment. Anyway, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. I hope we get to talk again soon. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Christian. I appreciate it, man. All right. And we'll talk to you again soon. And uh, that's it for us. So for myself, Christian Blatt at Christian DMZ, Jeff Duray at Jeff Duray, Will Sterling at Will Sterling underscore, and of course, at Culturing Leaks. We will see you next time on the Blackcast. a man going around taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame everybody won't be treated all the same there'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around